Hello again and welcome to another episode of Voices from SA. My name is Nicholas Claude. I hope you're keeping well wherever you are. Thanks for listening. Voices from SA is now entering its third year. You can support this ongoing project by becoming a patron. Go to Patreon forward slash Voices from SA. Uh, you can donate an amount of your choice. Thanks to my first two patrons, my wife Kaiser and my sister Anna, for supporting the project. Your support will allow me to travel more widely across South Africa, introducing you to the voices of amazing people, more amazing people, and perhaps even uh, go beyond the borders of the country. I will be going to Africa Podfest in uh, Nairobi in mid-March. I'm looking really forward to that. And I'm trying to line up some interviews with people working in civil society up in Kenya. My guest this week is Obakeng Lesiani. He's a young social activist. He describes himself uh, in our discussion as an advocate for access to quality education, uh, an advocate for an ethical public service, and uh, a young person trying to have some fun along the way. He's a public speaker on this and other matters. He's also a founder of EdConnect Labs, an NGO that connects bursary givers to bursary seekers. His, um, his life, his short life has entailed quite a journey. Um, he won a scholarship to Bishop's School in Cape Town. He tells the story of that whole process, studying at the African Leadership Academy here in Johannesburg, and he's about to head off to the United States to start um, studying economics. Um, really cool young man. We chatted about the need to transform the way we even think about education in this country and how we teach education, how we teach people at schools, um, the role of schools in, in their communities, um, the need to involve parents more in their children's education, particularly um, children in, in public schooling um, and you know what a difference an inspiring and committed uh, teacher can, can make to, to a pupil. We also discussed um, the current political system, the need for better civic education, civic and voter education so that people can understand better how the system works and how they can make it work better for them. So please enjoy now my chat with Obakeng. You're a, I mean, how would you describe yourself? You're a kind of, are you a social entrepreneur, kind of education-focused social entrepreneur? I would like to say like I wear different hats, right? So sometimes I advocate for access to quality education. Other times I advocate for uh, ethical public service. Um, other times I'm just a young person trying to have fun in this world <laughs> so good um yeah i just wear different hats but i would say i mean um, your 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 main sort of um focus though is the ed connect yeah labs that's yeah. your ngo yeah so it's more of an ngo a with a lens of trying to think about because ngos are quite hard to maintain how do you build enough revenue to be able to accelerate the work that you do and possibly even scale up Right. So the whole idea behind it was I had just got a scholarship to go down to Cape Town Bishops. And every single time I went back home, I saw some of my friends who I knew were, were like 
so much more smarter than I was. They were much more brilliant and in some ways much more deserving of the opportunity than like I, I, I like felt I was. And obviously when you get into these schools, you like realize that there's a bunch of uh, scholarship opportunities. There are some form of financial aid that someone could possibly receive. So one holiday I went home and then I'm like, it would really be cool to run a campaign to maybe get some of my friends to come join me at school. So that by the time that we go back home, I have stories, I can tell stories that they too can also understand. And, yes. and there isn't this big gap that often schools in South Africa create, particularly good ones and somewhat ill-equipped ones. And I ran a campaign where I got a bunch of scholarship forms and I took them, I, I literally took them back to my primary school. I was like, hey guys, um, we're going to spend like a couple of hours filling these things and then we're going to get your transcripts and some recommendation letters from teachers. We're going to attach it and we're going to send it to these schools and then we're going to see what happens. And um, we had a couple of successes and but then what I then realized is that it's great that you can maybe take one or two, mm. right? But it's quite hard to think about how do you scale up uh, an activity where you just ran a campaign for fun, you're just like, I, this like means a lot to me that my friends could also have the same opportunity. But you're like, this is a concern across South Africa that for sure, um, the like, cost of attaining quality education is super high, but there are some people, there are some trusts, there are some institutions that have put in place financial assistance Yes. But how many people tap into that or like how many we people know, know about, about that? It, yeah. It's a very different conversation. Mm. So the aim was we are going to make sure that people know about it. We're gonna know, we, are, we are going to make sure that people that do qualify for it get a chance to, even if it's as far as coming up to Joburg, being an Allen Gray scholar, being a student sponsorship scholar, that I didn't know that there were so many other uh, trusts and foundations whose who's like sole purpose is to make sure that students wouldn't otherwise have a chance of Hmm. getting good quality education do so you're a kind of um you're the spider in the web as it were between the the the, the companies and organizations offering um scholarships or bursaries to shall we say private schools or model c schools yeah, and so. and the the sort of broader student uh, or learner uh, population in the country yeah so before the like model was like quite simple you have someone who wants to grant someone else an opportunity, you have someone else who needs it. Mm. How do you bridge the two? Yeah. That was how we like pretty much existed. But obviously as you keep on doing that, you like realize that it's quite routine and like sometimes let's say you have a hundred students and maybe only let's say at most fifteen of them proceed to the finalist round. At most maybe one or two of them gets the scholarship. That you're like, okay, you will never operate big enough to be able to solve the like larger crisis of those that maybe were hopeful, but then ended up not being able to get it. And I then began learning about stuff like policy, partnerships between schools and corporates and stuff like that. And then I was like, how could, how do we ensure that we can be able to exist in that space in a way where we, where like we say, we like understand that the problems are one, two, three, four, five. Here's how we could possibly solve them before these kids even get to an age of applying. Like think about the fact that only 70, I mean, only 22% of grade four students can read for meaning. Mm. Ultimately, those grade four students are going to be applicants to these high schools at the end of grade seven. What are the chances that they will actually get in? Quite low. So then you could say, how about we propose an intervention program? You say between maybe grade two and possibly grade six, you're like quite deliberate about ensuring that these kids know how to read and somehow develop a passion for it. That the conversation you have then, by the time that they're applying, 
it's a very different conversation. So um, that's a space that I'm kind of playing in right now. Okay, that's interesting. I've been thinking about this um, for some time. Um, the the that I'd be interested to hear what you say. One of the issues, um, apart from a very poor sort of education infrastructure in the country, where you have very poorly equipped schools, I'm not even talking about the pit latrines, I'm talking about a lack of a library or the lack of a science lab, particularly when it comes to, to high school or even yeah, a classroom, let alone a teacher that comes to work on a regular basis and is enthusiastic about the work they do. But it also, there's a, there's a, a legacy of illiteracy in the bigger family. And so parents are not able to actually even check their children's homework. Yeah. So no one's following up on that basic function. And it just, it's been sort of on my mind for a while now that there's a space there for some kind of volunteer organization, after school kind of service. Is that what you're sort of thinking, like an after school sort of homework focused process for kids between the age of, I don't know, would it be 6 to 12, something like that, where every afternoon there's somebody monitoring that they're doing their homework right, assisting them with their homework, whether it be um, simple mathematics or simple numeracy or literacy? So, I, I mean, A, um, the part of parental involvement into most children's education is quite poor in the country. And you will find that if you can activate that part of it, that a child feels much more supported at school, they, that the parents are quite involved in their learning journey. Um, and you find that predominantly in black communities, that is not a thing. Um, and I mean, you could propose that that could be one of the intervention plans that you create a space either within the school that the child or, um, sort of already goes to, or like you make use of a, uh, you like make use of a community center. Hmm. Um, but you will still always have a problem of you can only service such, such a few a, number mm, of people. Yeah. You like often need capacity to do that. You need money. You need mm. so many other things, right? That I'm like, yes, we may have a quite a bad system, but often in like relatively bad systems as well, uh, you could find that the, the, like a very good teacher makes such a big difference. Sure. Right. Someone who's somewhat willing to go beyond the like, call of duty, mm. someone who doesn't just see their role as I'm just here to deliver this content to you. But like in many ways, there are like role, they're, they're like role models, their fathers, yeah. their mothers, their brothers that I'm like often in bad systems, um, individuals make such a big difference because there's a lot of dysfunction. Someone who comes with a very strong passion for also wanting to improve themselves, they're better able to serve others because they've they have something to give. Um, yeah, I think we do always remember that one particular teacher from whatever period in our schooling career. But, I mean, what do you... Because it does seem... I mean, you, you were fortunate. I think there's no yeah. doubt about that. I mean, just that... Maybe you can just tell the story about you meeting the... Is it the king of the buffer king? Yeah. So uh, there's, a, there's, a, there's a picture that I like to refer to. Even I saw him towards the end of the year last year and then I showed him the picture. I'm sure he couldn't believe it. 
but I mean, luckily my like facial structure has like sort of stayed the same. So <laughs> it's like quite easy. To How old were you when you met, met the king? I was probably like 11, 12. Yeah, okay. um, so it's what, 10 years ago now? Eight years ago. Yeah, 10 years ago. Mm. Um, so what you, what, you, what you sort of find is hard is that I had went to like a community gathering and the king was about to give like a, an equivalent of a state of the nation address. Um, and he asked the rhetorical question. What was the question? The question was who, um, out of like everyone who was there, who like remembers the like royal bloodline, which someone had like spoken about earlier. So I ran, I like pretty much ran to the, to the stage and then I told him that I remember it and then I started reciting it for him. And I read it like from like his great grandfathers up, like literally up until to him. And then, and then when it got to him, I was like, even you, I know you. And then I said his name and then he began to laugh. And what then transpired after that is like, oh my God, wow, really? Um, and then he was like, if there was one thing that I could do for you, what do you want me to do? I like I had a bunch of things run through my mind, but I I had really wanted to go to school where like I could be able to learn English because by that time I was around grade four, grade five ish. And I just thought I'm always watching TV sometimes and I see these brilliant kids who are pretty much my age, but I'm nowhere near close to expressing myself that way or like carrying myself that way. So my goal was take me to school where like I can learn English. And I think it just kind of disappeared into the air, but luckily by luck and chance Two years later, they started a scholarship fund to send two boys from the Bafking villages to Bishops, which mm. is a boys' school in Cape Town. Yes. And I don't know how it happened, but I somehow found found myself within the boys that were taking the test, that were like interviewing. And at every single stage, I just kept on myself. I don't know. I just kept on telling myself, I don't know how like I'm making it here because I don't even understand what I just wrote. <laughs> um, and that was sort of the like hard thing for me because what happened is it like started off as a big group of people because they're like mm. they're like twenty nine villages back home, and I'm sure each village had like close to like five to ten boys. Yeah, so it's a hundred, hundred more than a hundred are starting the process. And then you to just get keep two on places, going. you like just keep on going. And then so the like hard thing is they like kept on making these tests on Fridays. So Fridays typically in like most public schools you like close school quite early, like around one twelve you're like out. Mm. And we, we like used to leave uh, our like villages at like seven in the morning, come back at like six in the evening and would be taking these tests that I was like, I'm exhausted. And every single week I was like, okay, that was my last one. I'm, I'm done because I'm probably out. And then I just kept on making it, kept on making it. And it finally came down to like about 10 boys and they flew in the headmaster to Rustenburg to come, to come have a conversation with us. The, the headmaster at Bishops? Yeah. My goodness. Um, which was super, super intimidating because I didn't, because I didn't, I just didn't even know what, like, like what I was going to say to him. expected of you. Um, and during the interview, we, uh, I, 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 I actually think that's what got me the scholarship. He, he like asked me a very, very personal question and my mother was there and my mother started crying. Um, and uh, I don't, like it was <laughs> it's so hard looking back at the moment because I don't even know how like I was describing the situation to the point where he actually got what I was saying um, and about a couple of months later came back home from school and I found a really big box and I opened the box it had a shirt in it and it had welcome to bishops <laughs> And I cried. Like, yeah. I just knew that day my life would just never be the same. Uh, two, two weeks later, my mom and I flew for the first time to Cape Town to go mm -hmm. see the school. 
slept at the school, spent some time with the boys. I mean, even then, I really couldn't speak properly. So I, I like barely expressed myself, but I was really happy. I was like, if anything that I've asked for, this is it. Hmm. Like, this is what will make my life different. And it really has. Sure. So, and but you were 14 then, something like that? I said, yeah, 13, 14, grade 8. Yeah. And how was that? Because, I mean, you really were a fish out of water then in so many respects, weren't you? I mean, compared to the other boys who'd been there for so many years who were, I suppose, a majority white kind of school population as well, quite privileged, you coming from the complete opposite end of the spectrum. Yeah. How did you find that whole process of adjusting and so, I assimilating mean, I mean, or, or not? What is really, really interesting is that most like analysis you make about how you've navigated the space become apparent to you once you leave the space. Not so much when you're in it, particularly, I think, as a young person. I didn't have a very strong sense of identity. I was like still trying to figure myself out. Um, and honestly speaking, for the most part of it, I was just excited to be there. I was, I was, I was, I was just so excited that I am not at home, that I can go to bed. Uh, in a full stomach that I was developing some like so, some like sort of routine that I'm doing homework at this time I'm sleeping at this time I'm waking up at this time I have, I have sports at this time that I somewhat developed I would say a routine or like a work ethic structure as well as an ethic yeah. yeah that I find super super important right now that I'm like yes there are parts of it that I wish weren't like that like such as that my like class not like representing the like larger demographics of the country but there are also good parts of it that I'm like, I wouldn't have known that I loved running. I wouldn't have not, like, I didn't know that I liked, I, I actually enjoyed rowing. I was like, <laughs> in what world would a black boy from Puking row? And I mean, even now, I just, I just love thinking about that. I actually wanted to play water polo at some point. And I'm like, and that you had the opportunity to just find out that you could do that or not. Yeah. yeah, and I could do debating, I could do public speaking, I could do so many other things that I would say really, really expanded what what like would have been of me if I had just stayed maybe in a in another school where where I would have tried to go to school. And here's the hard thing for me actually is that sometimes when I go back home and I see some of the kids that I went to school with and they tell me that they are returning to prison for the fourth time or they are getting their fourth born or like stuff like that. That is very, it's very sad to hear, but I know that I would have probably been like any, like, like, like there is no, like I would have most likely resembled the same thing if I had honestly stayed where I was. Because the environment in, like, literally in of itself, it's it's like okay, it's like it's like pretty much normal that oh, you're like probably not gonna finish school, you're probably gonna start working or like pushing trolleys, whatever. That I'm like, for me, what then became hard it was I had a sort of I think Plato describes it as the allegory of the cave. You have just seen the sun, which like hurts your eyes so much, and you're trying to go back home to tell everyone about the thing that you've just seen. But you don't even have the language to like describe that sun. That I'm like, for me, I would say that was the hardest part about that whole experience. Going back home and feeling like no one gets it. But when I'm with my friends at school, everyone gets it. Um, so in some ways, I would say I started drifting away. Like more like holidays, I just wanted to spend them with my friends from back at school. Wanted to go on vacation with their families. Wanted to do all of these things that really were not possible to do at home. Mm. Like, I didn't know about things like summer camp. I just thought, you just go home, you sleep. 
sleep and wake up whenever you want. If you have maybe have some like house chores and stuff like that, maybe let you continue with it. But the value and importance of structure that I got from the school is unparalleled. Hmm. I suppose. I mean, it makes you think then of the the ongoing inequality in the country and how it's kind of sustained in a way because of that gap between the public and the private education system. Would you say there's a, a, something to that? I mean, I will just take it from a very simple perspective as to how the curriculum differs. And so firstly, most 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 private schools are are like sort of able to keep up with the curriculum and children already come like exam time and you'll find that very very few of the of the private schools do all of these camps that most public schools do nearing exams because the kids are fairly prepared from a curriculum understanding perspective but also from assessment preparation that you are always prepared to take an exam compared to maybe a child who who, who now needs to do a, a holiday camp because... Or extra lessons after school on weekends and things like that. Because the they're, they're, they're like teacher couldn't, couldn't get through the curriculum on time. But I'd say the like largest matrix of the difference is how many kids that often come from private schools cope at like a university level hmm. versus those from public schools who don't cope so much at a university level. Right. So... Yeah, that's kind of where I'm going. It's like the, the, the public school system is not really preparing the students for the next step in their education if they choose to go to university or indeed whatever they choose to do because they're, they're, they've got very poor literacy and numeracy skills. Yeah, for sure. But then also it's like I was, I was, I was speaking to one of my friends who's a junior lecturer and she said that she was quite surprised that some of her students didn't know how to reference that they were plagiarizing work, right? Um, and you and when you dig deep into it, you find that it's maybe someone who just didn't who just doesn't even know what 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 like plagiarism is. And you ask yourself, this person made it through high school, which supposedly had some like research project, um, and came to university. They could, they can, they can barely use a computer. They can barely put a PowerPoint together. They could barely read a uh, Excel sheet, stuff like that. That you're like, what's hard about it is a to access higher quality education is super, super expensive. So then from there you have like created like a exclusionary barrier. Uh, B, um, it's like most of the kids I would say in the public school system, some would have to play catch up for pretty much the like rest of their lives. Because what you then also find is that the culture in private schools is very different to the culture in public schools. And the culture in, in private schools very closely resembles the culture that you'll most likely also find in corporate or like in these bigger, or, 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 or like in these big accounting and um, consulting firms. Hmm. I mean, what do you think are the, the things that need to happen in the public um, education space for it to, to close the gap to private schools so i mean outside of um just building better like infrastructure i think that teachers really need to be continuously equipped that you find that in most private schools teachers maybe have a 
a training of some sort, maybe like every single second week, that they that they can even teach students in very different methods. That one day maybe you're like in a classroom, the next you're like on a field trip, the next you are watching a video. But but like just like private schools have like found ways to make learning exciting in a way that I'd say the the like other big barrier is that most like private schools, I mean public schools tend to just stick to we need we, we like just need to get students through this curriculum so that they can be ready exam time, which which like often they're not, but be their like understanding of what they've pretty much been learning the whole year is, is, is like is like quite poor from an application perspective. Is that they can regurgitate but analyzing and applying becomes a bit harder, which are the which are more high order type of thinking stuff. Mm. But how do you develop that? I mean, I think it was in your TEDx talk, you talk about study as a revolutionary duty. Yeah. So that leaves it to the individual as well. There's got to be some sort of curiosity or some sort of motivation from the individual themselves, right? Or what are you talking about? Um, I mean, I mean, we a, we a need to acknowledge that certain spaces just make it quite hard to just be motivated and like sort of inspired. That I'm like, it then goes back to that point of what happens when you are in a bad system and you and and you happen to have a good teacher. That teacher could like inspire something within you. It would be a lie for me to say I have I have I have always been inspired as a child because I really wasn't. It's only towards the later parts of my high school years that I gained this like intense inspiration from like one teacher that I had, who was from Togo, um, lived in Colorado. And had just come back from, uh, and had just come back to South Africa. Was he this made, at Bishops? No, this was at the school that I then oh, later my goodness. went to. Oh really? Um, the, oh, the African Leadership, Leadership Academy. Academy. Okay. He made me fall in love with school so much. He made me want to read more. He 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 just made me not just be a passive participant in my learning, but I but I had never been like that before. I, I was I was I was somewhat comfortable to just go to class, read, write an exam, finish. But I'm like, you need, to, I mean, often you find that in certain spaces, it's a lot It's a lot easier to find sources of like inspiration. But I'd say in most public schools and in most townships, it's quite hard. That is why um, if you're not born in a sil- with like a silver spoon in your mouth in a township, chances of survival or like chances of you succeeding are quite low. Is that because, because it always does amaze me, um, I've mentioned this in a couple of um, the podcasts I've had, you know, you drive, sometimes I find myself driving out in Pumalanga, Limpopo, whatever, in an afternoon when the schools are coming out, and there's just thousands of kids, all in their uniforms, with their books, you know, they're going to school. Mm. Um so there's a commitment at some level to the project, the process of school, but at the same time you think there's also just some sort of hopelessness there as well. So I'm I'm going to reference a project which I'm a big fan of, which is the Leap Science and Math Schools. Leap, yeah, um, the code Leap Science and Math started by Jim, by John Gilmore. And they opened a school three years ago um, in Limpopo, in a township that had no running water, that had no like that that had no like electricity. Um, and the school was opened in in like a space that is very ch- that is that is that is very similar to like a church. 
So they're like, because it's like quite hard to get money to build a new like infrastructure for school. So they were, they were like, what like currently exists that we can leverage? Like a community hall, church yeah. hall kind of thing. So they they like pretty much spoke to the church and they and and they and they, and they said between these hours would like to make use of the space and we we could compensate you of some level. And they started the school. So the school predominantly focuses on like math and science, but they do focus on other things. So we did speak about early on about how like poor the like math pass rate is and how poor understanding of science across high schools is. But what was really really interesting about the school <laughs> is that. Um, I would say within about two years of their like operate uh, of like their like sort of operation, I, I'm like going to assume that they maybe took children from grade ten upwards and then started slowly building for like sort of other classes as well. Is that their first graduating class had a hundred percent bachelor's pass rate, had a hundred percent university admission rate, right? So think about it. These are kids in areas where there's no electricity, there's no running water. It's deep in. I mean, deep into the township, where they are surrounded by by all of, by, by by like all of these things that like typically makes it quite hard for you to live, but are still pulling through, passing really really well, getting hundred percent university admission rate. That I I then asked John. I mean, John, what did you guys do differently here? It's like a we were there were there were thing able to bridge the gap that like typically exists between parents and students learning hmm. b they had very very good teachers teachers that were committed to these students do you get what i mean so i'm i am going to assume that if you can get those two things right regardless of what challenges you like have to deal with you can often bypass them because when you have a very good and activated parental support is that one child is maybe not able to go home because the mom is God knows why. Yeah, that 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 child can be taken in, in by someone else, right? So you have a teacher who's saying, out of my ten students, two of them don't understand something else. I'm going to stay after school to to possibly explain it to them. You have people who are who are who are, who are somewhat motivated to go beyond what seems like their like expectation. That I'm like, if you're able to get those two things right, activate very strong parental support in children's learning and be, be able to have teachers who just really care, um, which is sometimes quite hard to care when they are not compensated well or like when they're paid late hmm. and so forth. And working in a school that has very few resources to begin exactly. with. Because you do talk about that... Um, as well, the you know the, the need for socially conscious schools and committed teachers. Um, what, what is a socially conscious school then? Does, is that a, a school that's kind of aware of its context and its community? Or for sure, um, Paula Ferreira um, speaks quite well about the pedagogy of the oppressed, um, which is his arguably most like famous book of how do you like engage with oppression in a way that allows people to heal, but then also, but but then also to sort of move forward. Because whether we like it or not, big part of South Africa's history is based on injustice and racial inequality. That I'm like, we are not going to move the country forward if we are both concerned about further like dividing it. That a big part of it has to be those that have been previously oppressed and those that currently still. Um, 
um, benefit from sort of that like oppression. How do you engage very, very honestly about a how there's been lack of economic, I mean, equal economic distribution of resources, um, land and so forth? That I'm like, big part of schools for me, um, it, it's you're, you're like sort of looking at schools as a vehicle for social justice because by the time that you often engage with oppression that exists in the larger part of the country, you're like in university and so forth, which I think is too late. I'm like a big part of what schools should like resemble from like the type of content they teach to the type of people who like sort of deliver that content to the ethos and values of the school. It has to be that part of what are we, like how, like how is what we're learning impacting communities that we live in? It doesn't even have to be at a country level. Is that if you have a school set up in deep Soweto, but yet the amount of pollution there or like amount of teenage pregnancy there and so forth is not being attended to by the school that someone exists there to build all of these individuals, then you ask yourself, what are you what are you really building them to be if not to service their communities to the immediate problems that like currently exist? So for me, that's what school is really. It's a, you are equipped to deal with the problems that you are currently facing and you can somewhat devise a solution to it. Not you learning all of these things that ultimately make you turn a blind eye. So there needs to be a, a sort of transformation of the whole philosophy of the education system then in some respects, is that what you... For sure. Totally. I, there's no other way around it really. Because then you're going to fix one thing about it, but the whole thinking behind it, it's what is also contributing to the problem. That I'm like, imagine countries like Singapore, Finland, who are like able to confidently say, we're not going to give students homework. We are not going to make students take exams. But students that leave those countries are even more competent than, than like those that get homework, that get assessments. Then you, then you pretty much ask yourself, what what about that education philosophy works versus the one that we currently have? Um, but I mean, those are highly, not only developed, highly wealthy societies, aren't they? For sure. I mean, that that is a, I'm always wary of sort of applying models from outside onto, onto, onto a, a, a situation that is so abnormal, really, if we want to talk but, about but, Africa. But I mean, I think a part of it is, we are we are by no means saying apply everything. We are just saying what can we learn about why they do things a certain way, not how, why, right? Is that what we'll then figure out is that a big big part of maybe what they may have done is figured out that if we conduct learning in in maybe this way, learning outcomes become fundamentally different. That I'm like, if you don't have people who are just continuously thinking about why do we have processes that we have? Those like processes, even if they are outdated, no one, no one will like, will like ever even think about how to better improve them, because no one is speaking about why does, like, why does that process exist from the get go? It's just no, that's how we teach students. Mm. We are pretty much comfortable with it. We are, we are by no means saying copy Scandinavian countries, but we are saying understand why they conduct the philosophy of their learning in the manner that they do. Because of that, we can then come back and say, 
because we have understood that maybe if you do one, two, three, four, five with a child, they are most likely going to retain knowledge and stuff like that. I mean, example, they're like, I was reading this thing today that was about how do you ensure that uh, someone is able to retain whatever it is that they've learned. And it said, make them teach someone else what they've learned. That's the most effective way to sort of do that. And then you sit back, you're like, what about our education system allows uh, Obageng to teach Mapule about what he has learned in school? Nothing. Because guess what? You are going to be taught in class and you're going to have to regurgitate it at the end of the year. Whereas you now look at a different public school, I, I mean private school model that says, yeah, we have just learned about um, the types of laws that like existed during like apartheid do like a presentation about them do a powerpoint about them that students understanding from just simple interventions like that becomes fundamentally different so then you ask yourself does it mean that we have copied every single thing that the Scandinavian countries do no but we have understood why they do it to the point where we could equally apply that into our own context therefore whatever you have learned becomes relevant to you um, you just, uh, well, I saw on your LinkedIn, you posted, it's uh, a video that you've, you did called, is it Divi Divided South Africa? Yeah, I, th I think that's the title that the editor gave it. <laughs> um, but I mean, the, the point of it is to show, I mean, it's 30 years since uh, Nelson Mandela was released, 25 years of ANC government. And I think in a sort of very simple way, I'll, I'll put a link to it on the on the page, uh, on the Voices from SA page, is essentially that we are still sort of very divided on a on a racial basis in this country, or is that the kind, or that life has not changed for the majority of the population to the extent it perhaps should have. I mean, for me, I will just say this, that what, what maybe for me um, speaks volumes is the fact that... Um, because you weren't, I mean, you weren't alive when Nelson Mandela was... By no chance. I doubt that I was even a thought in my mom's mind. <laughs> um, that I look at electoral uh, turnout quite a lot and how it has declined since 1994. I mean, in the past election last year, uh, the May 2019 elections, which was our fifth democratic elections, uh, young people under the age of 35, they, they constituted about, I mean, uh, young people between the ages of 18 and 25, which is the voting population um, within the youth, constituted about 15 million, point, yeah, about, about, 50 million of the voters and you had just about 5 million of them registered to vote you had about 3 million of them actually did vote vote right and then you now look at how many seats the current party needed to get to I mean how many votes they got for them to be the ruling party they got about 10 million votes between 10 to 11 million votes so what that tells you is that young people between the ages of 18 and 35 had enough power to be able to change government if they so felt they could or maybe knew how to engage in civic education politics. That what I have found quite hard is we have put a political system in place 
but the number of people that know about uh, a how someone gets a seat in parliament it's in a language that most people don't even understand that what then happens is you have an old you you're like someone have an older you 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 have an older generation of people show up to vote and those are people that are most likely going to stick to their politics of 20 30 years ago that you have young people who somewhat have a different understanding of politics because guess what they are feeling the effects of it from super super high like um unemployment rates to uh fees must fall to roads must fall and so forth and I'm like these are people that are that are essentially saying this is our country we are we are the ones that are going to inherit it but are they best equipped to be able to a imagine a change of government i probably probably don't think so and the and and what and what like hurts about this is that civic education in the country just like across the board is really really poor that if you're not within a certain educational level chance of you engaging with politics at that point i mean at that basic understanding of 0.25 of the total votes gives you a seat in parliament so how it benefits the current parties is if you have very very few people show up to vote the better it is for you because you need less seats to get a seat in I mean I mean you need less yes, votes to get a seat in parliament. It's a very simple metric. So that is why you can still have a decline in our sort of voter outcome and still have the ruling party be be like able to like maintain a simple majority. Um and I also didn't know about these things up until last year. Mm. So I'm like, yes, I did go to a fairly good school. Yes, I am surrounded by fairly smart people. But we don't actually engage as to how our system set up and what about them need, needs to change because how it currently exists means that yes you can have all of these summits and conferences speak about how you desire a change in governance and so forth but up until you actually deal with the systems that that make what we are currently dealing with possible from state capture to very poor accountability to constituencies from MPs then you are really not going to solve much you're going to be speaking in a silo in so many ways So the hard thing for me is how how best do you equip people to have a sense of agency um because it's because it's quite poor particularly among young people as well a sense of of understanding and engagement with the political system yeah and that's just on its on how it works not necessarily even at a party political level yeah then. yeah because because once you understand how it works is that you can map it out and say This is what currently exists. This is where maybe the political party fits in. This is where my community fits in. This is where I fit in. So if I do this or move this lever, then we could possibly have a different outcome. I mean, US the midterm elections in America is a perfect example of that. Is that they Trump had just been uh Trump is uh, Trump had just been elected uh maybe I th- I, th- I think two years I mean, 2016. Yeah. yeah. So no I'm speaking about the 20 the 20 2018 yeah the yeah. thing 2018 elections hmm. is that people were so unhappy about his election that they managed to activate the like largest youth turnout ever in the history of America ever for the mid for the midterm elections that is why you could have such a different congress now hmm. where you have Elon uh where where like you have Elon Omar yes you have uh, I think it's a four yeah 
Rashid Talab, stuff like that. I'm like, those things don't just happen because people sit on panels and speak about them. They happen because you go to communities and you make sure that they understand how they how the electoral system works, what is their role in it, what are the different stages. Because if you even have a, like, if you don't register, you can't have a chance to vote. You're out. Hmm. So, and you're saying like thirty percent of the youth in this country didn't register even. Yeah, I'm. I mean, I'm sure it could possibly even be higher than that because I'm just speaking on what seems to be the like estimates of it. Mm. But, I mean, think about how 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 like parties generally don't push for. I mean, they do say they push for strong registration campaigns and stuff like that, but they're quite passive in it. They they like really only become active once they know the like numbers that they're working with, because really it's a game of numbers. Think about how once you know that maybe people in the I mean Gauteng is the biggest voting province followed by KZN, that in those provinces there are certain areas where people consume social media quite a lot. People, I mean, potential for fake news is super super intense, but. What then becomes harder is that Facebook says they have 5,000 data points on pretty much most, most like individuals that like engage with the platform. So, so, as a, so as a political party, you can pretty much pay to have your ads and campaigns dire- directed to particular, particular individuals in particular areas. Mm, yeah, it is quite targeted now. So now then you ask yourself, if, if maybe you had a very big turnout of people in like the rural parts of the country where internet connection is super poor, very, very few of them have access to like smartphones. It, it, I mean, conversation about politics would like turn out completely different because, I mean, also just adding to the part of the point that we made earlier about ownership of land, uh, I mean, land claims and stuff like that. It's quite shocking how many people don't have addresses because to be able to vote, you like need to have an address. And you see that most evidently during during the voting times, mm. that so many people in the outskirts of this country that have never seen that have never seen the fruit, the like fruits of this democracy that we host conferences about, um, don't have addresses, and some of them only probably voted once, which was in 1994, and never again voted, mm. because then what's the point when you look at your life? You're like 1994. I had so much hope. 1999, my hopes started taking a decline. Couldn't feed my kids. My house was like pretty much still the same and so forth. I'm like, for me, those are the real problems that democracy ought to try and solve, particularly in a developing democracy like ours. How do you ensure that accountability is not just a word, but people are sort of equipped to also hold you accountable, Mm -hmm. which is quite hard because you're saying to someone, this is how you've elected me, but this is also how you can take me out. So we, we like only barely speak, I mean, like speak a lot about how to get elected, but we don't speak about the fact that you don't actually have to keep on voting for the same people, that, that stuff like impeachment or like change of leadership is quite possible. I suppose the Independent Electoral Commission must have some role then to play in that sort of at a basic voter education level, you'd imagine. So what so what you would find um, last year in April I w- I went to the IEC's um, civic um, I mean civil I mean civil I mean civil society briefing and what was hard is they are acutely aware of what should be done 
and what needs to be done, but it's not being done. Hmm. So they do speak about the fact that they have very limited resources to be able to get as many numbers as like possible, but then also how the current politicians make their work quite hard, really, because when you think about it, as a person maybe in the outskirts of where democracy may be most vibrant, I sit and I ask myself, every single five years, every single three years, I'm voting. But nothing fundamentally changes. It's one politician after another, so forth, that I'm like, a big part of what could make IEC's work quite easy and also just strengthen governance is to reimagine our electoral system. Somewhat have an electoral reform where people aren't just tied to their parties, but are much more tied to their constituencies that if your constituency is not happy with you, they could easily change you. That party lists, I mean, exist, but you don't even get a chance to say, I want Tabo to be my representative instead of Alan or like instead of whoever else. That I'm like, how it currently exists is that our, 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 our public representatives are much more accountable to their parties than like to the citizens. And... Does it ever surprise you that because of that understanding, what need is there for them to 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 do work according to the citizens' needs rather than the party's needs? So in some ways, it's sad, but the party lives above the country. Yeah, mm, yeah sobering, isn't it? Jeez, um, because we... We do seem to be in some sort of crisis right now. I mean, uh, just at so many different levels, you just wonder how we're going to get out of out of it. Um, I want to just talk a little bit about yourself, if I may. Okay. Um, you you went you you matriculated or you did you finish at Bishops and then go to the African Leadership Academy? Is that a kind of post school school? No. So the African Leadership Academy is a two year. Um, pre-university oh, okay, like a bridging kind of no it's, oh, it's just a, a diploma it, it, it's a so you don't necessarily have to finish high school it's an equivalent because what you then do there also is Cambridge A levels okay um, so they, that's their their curriculum is yeah. O level A level yeah but the pretty much reason why the institution exists is to build leaders for the continent Yes, I noticed that there are kids from all over Africa. Yeah, so you so you find that in the whole academy we have about 55 African countries, so there's only one missing. Mm. Um, that must have been amazing. Yeah, I mean, it's a completely mind shift comparing it to bishops because mm. the space is just different. Um, but also, I think it's the only school that really allowed me to travel beyond South Africa, but also be able to see what like happens outside in the world. Um, I, I remember I went to Harvard for a model UN debate. Uh, I had never seen snow, so I like introduced <laughs> snow. I like I like I like saw snow for the first time. Um, I went to UPenn the like following summer for a leadership in the business world summer UPenn? program. UPenn, yeah, at the University of Pennsylvania. Okay, at the Wharton Business School, um, coined as the best business school in the world. Um, did my first internship abroad. Hmm. Um, when I was in 2018. So in some ways, I somewhat look at my life and I'm like, even though I had come from the space that I had come from, I have I have been quite blessed with opportunities that are 
that were never things that I would deem as within reach. Hmm. But I know that that is not the story of every single person. Yeah. So in some ways, uh, because you've been given and you are in a position to give, you just keep on doing your bit, right? Is that we can sit and have a whole, we can have a conversation the whole day about how politics is failing, but sometimes you can mobilize very, very strong forces within like society, which like ultimately sometimes make politics seem quite, quite, quite useless. Mm. And then you ask yourself, what then happens to taxpayers' money? You're paying all of these guys so much money, but they don't even spend time thinking about how to best service you. Mm. So, ALA was a great, really was a really, really great experience. But also, even when I was there, I was equally reminded that I'm here because of a scholarship that I got. Right. So, I had never been to a, a school in the past seven years because of, um, because like I could afford to be there. I was there because someone else either paid for me or like I received money from a trust or like a foundation of some sort. That I, I those are people that I often feel deeply, deeply indebted to because of their like investment in my education as well as in my future. So I never think that I am I am who I am because of my brilliance. Rather I am who I am because of people that just decided to, to like someone take a leap of faith particularly in the first in my first scholarship when I was 13 turning 14 to go to go to go to grade 8 because that really changed my life I mean I sometimes say to people that I I literally read my first book in grade 8 hmm. and it was a book by Barack Obama called Dreams for My Father which was quite funny because huh. I'm I'm like I don't really know who my father is so I can't even relate to the title of the book, but um, so much of what what is my foundation in terms of work ethic, um, reading, further investing in myself and so forth comes from that initial experience that I had. Hmm. I mean, I, I just like to view things as balanced. Nothing is totally bad because I, I don't like purists. Like I just think it's, it's, it's just not a practical way to just live in the world. Sure. So much of it is you often need to meet people at a point of compromise. But then also change happens at a point of compromise, actually, <laughs> whether you yeah. like it or not. Mm. It, it doesn't just, I mean, we can speak about all of these land claims and so forth, but up until you reach a compromise that is somewhat just to all the parties involved, then then you might have a different conversation about what happens moving forward. But if you're just gonna come and want to assert that things be done your way and no and no other person's way, then you'll then you'll probably not get your way. Mm. Then you might be met with war. What's next for you now? You say you're going to study? Yes. Um so I'm finally I have finally made a choice to go to university. Um, so shortly after earlier, I took a gap year, which I'm, uh, which which I'm about to complete. But I am looking to study further, um, mainly focus on um, how do I best equip myself to be able to come and contribute in building a very strong economic policy framework that allows for the size of the economy to grow, that allows for that that like allows for small to medium enterprises to also grow to the point where they could employ people over a sustained period of time but then ultimately the goal really is to be in government um mm. i i i'm i am just tired by how 
much I hear people being failed by it, by how many people I've seen die because of a dysfunctional healthcare system, how many people can't access higher quality education because frankly we just don't have the capacity to like accommodate for that and so forth. So you sit and you have conversations with your intelligent friends about it, but ultimately there's someone who's still gonna experience it forever up until you like choose to do something about it. So So where will you be studying then? Um I'm looking at the US as a very strong option right now. Um secondly to that, um which is very unlikely, I think I might just study at home. Um but I really like to think of um this notion of the man in the arena. That if you're not in the arena, if you're not doing anything about it, your complaint is really not is really is like really not gonna do much. Mm. Right, is that you have to keep on trying, just like keep on trying. Be engaged, get involved. It's super, super exhausting, but you just have to keep on moving. Hmm. Oba Kang, thanks so much for your time today. Thank you really so much for this. Great meeting you, inspirational, and uh, all the best with your future studies and beyond. <laughs> Thank you so much. This is actually the like first interview that I've had where I feel like I am actually in conversation with someone. like the way he says get in the arena you know stop complaining get involved um, it's something that a number of other guests on this show have have, have urged as well um, fascinating young man can only wish him the best um, and the fact that he wants to get into government you know change things from the inside I think is quite inspiring please become a patron keep the project alive um, with your support, the podcast can travel to all corners of South Africa and beyond. Thanks again to Hindenburg for their support. Hindenburg software is designed for radio journalism and podcasting. It's practical, easy to use. Go to Hindenburg.com for more information. You may subscribe to Voices from SFI, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Radio Public, Deezer, or indeed wherever you get your podcasts. Tell your colleagues, tell your friends, tell the world. Until next time. I'm Nicholas Claude. Cheers.